You're listening to End of the Line on WRIR LP 97.3 FM Richmond. End of the Line is an ongoing podcast about the pipeline struggles in Virginia and the Mid-Atlantic. I'm Whitney Whiting. And if this pipeline goes through, it will go through having created an empowered, connected and organized resistance of people. And there will never be able to be an injustice in this state that is unopposed in the same way. Today is July 5th, 2019, and this is more or less the final episode of End of the Line, in this format at least. After airing for the first time over two years ago, we've brought you stories from the front lines of the pipeline fights in so-called Virginia and West Virginia, from epic state water control board meetings to county courtrooms, mountaintop lockdowns, to conversations around smoky campfires. What I've loved about doing this podcast over the years is how it's enabled people across the region to be in conversation with one another without all having to be in the same room at the same time. But please don't be deceived by the phrase final episode. This will definitely not be the last time you hear from End of the Line. We're just going to take our time going forward because though there's increasing uncertainty over the fate of these two pipelines, the fight is far from over. I spoke with a few familiar voices recently to get their thoughts on where things are now and what lies ahead. As I look at what's happening today, I would tell you I have absolute fabulous confidence we're going to stop the Atlantic Coast Pipeline. That's Richard Averett of Nelson County. I recently spoke to him and his wife Jill, one of our first interviews together since 2017. Back then, Richard imparted a piece of advice given to him by another friend at the very beginning of this fight. He says, if you're going to do this, you got to go all the way to the end. And you got to never get discouraged when you feel like nothing you're doing is making any, any, any difference. He said, because you'll never, ever see them waver until the day you win. You'll never see it. You won't see a crack. In the armor, they won't show any weakness. They won't, you know, it'll be, they'll be, this pipeline's being built right up until the day it gets canceled in the news and you'll hear about it. This is what they do. They're pros, right? So he said, you've got to decide that you you won't be looking for those things because you'll just get discouraged. I asked Richard if he's been able to follow that advice in the time since. I would say yes and no. I mean, there's no way that you don't feel... Uh, uh, at times, uh, you know, tired and worn down, and you wonder uh, when when you'll find those uh, those uh, those victories that give you the energy to keep going. The irony the irony is, I think that statement could not that advice could not have been more uh, prescient. I think the evidence, some of the evidence of their anxiety and stress over this is exactly the opposite of this idea that you would see weakness in them. Instead, what you see is this incredibly aggressive ramp up in all aspects of PR and uh, associated with this pipeline because they're doing everything they can to sort of fight against the, the obvious 
uh, evidence that they're losing. So where do things stand right now for both pipelines? It's easy to forget that up until 2018, MVP and ACP were both neck and neck in their approval process and their timeline for construction. That all changed in early 2018, when MVP, for whatever reason, took on a much more aggressive approach for eminent domain proceedings and physical construction. However, as Richard recounts here, both pipelines still face numerous significant hurdles even now. Um, I think the MVP and the ACP both have a very significant structural hurdle to overcome around crossing the Appalachian Trail and the Blue Ridge Parkway. I think we're seeing, I think the ACP is stuck hard on that one, and I think they're going to have a very difficult time working around it. I think MVP has a potential workaround in, yeah, that already around this land swap that worries me um, because I think it is convenient enough in their case, like the specifics of that are convenient enough that they might be able to get that through. I don't think ACP has any option that looks like that. In addition to other permits that have been vacated or suspended for water crossings and species protection, the Appalachian Trail has also proved to be a legal barrier for both pipelines. While ACP is asking the U.S. Supreme Court to hear their legal appeal to cross the trail, MVP seems to be betting on a potential land swap with the Forest Service in order to avoid the costly delay of a reroute. There's no sign yet when either of these decisions might come, but Richard expressed anxiety for his fellow pipeline fighters impacted by the MVP. Uh, I, have a lot, I have a lot of anxiety around the MVP, too, because of how far along they already are. And, I, and, and uh, um, we are leaning in in all the ways we can think of to help uh, fight that case as well. In fact, we're helping back the Supreme Court cert that was just filed uh, on behalf of, of, uh, of a half a dozen or so MVP petitioners on quick take. Um, and of course, you know, getting that taken up is not just for MVP. It's really for MVP, ACP, and every other pipeline in the country, um, which, is, which is critical because I think at this point we see all of them as connected. A recent DEQ staff presentation revealed that in Virginia alone, MVP is somewhere between 60 to 65 percent complete. I asked Blacksburg pipeline fighter Michael James Darimo what he wants people to know about this moment in the struggle, after years of what has felt like an uphill battle. I think first, still here. <laughs> like, people are still here. They're still doing it. Um, and they're doing it more organized than they've ever been. Michael recently spent about seven hours on top of a piece of pipeline equipment near his home in Montgomery County, blocking MVP's construction at that site for the day. He received two misdemeanor charges for his action. Yeah, I mean, I think to start, what made me want to do it was, um, uh, you know, I've been, I've been fighting this pipeline for five years, obviously, um, through so many different measures. Um, and over the past year, uh, what I've gotten to see is a form of resistance that 
um, looks different and feels different. Um, and uh, because everyone knows me, knows who I am, um, and I grew up here, like I, I held a story um, in how I engaged in this action. Like so many people facing the pipeline fight, Michael has been to countless board meetings where he says it feels like those in power are trying to take the life out of this fight altogether. Yeah, I mean, they're putting all of these mechanisms into play to create our hopelessness so that we get out of their way. You know, even sitting sitting in these board meetings whenever, you know, and, we, and whenever we have these people who are told like are our authority and, are, and have the final word um, and they're sitting on the stage above us, you know, and, and there's this very rigid set of procedures that if we show too much emotion um, or too much grief or anger or sadness, then we are, you know, immediately in the wrong. They truly want to take the life out of, out of this, this struggle. They want to boil it down to a, to words on paper. Um, and that's it's that is wholly impossible because there are people's lives and livelihoods and memories and stories that are built into every single piece of this. And yeah, and so you know, I think yeah, when the regulatory bodies are not doing their job to truly protect us, then I mean, not only should they expect resistance, but like it becomes like our our duty um, to disobey them. If you're just tuning in, you're catching End of the Line on WRIR LP 97.3 FM Richmond. For the last two years, End of the Line has documented stories of resistance against two nearly identical fracked gas pipelines in so-called Virginia, the Mountain Valley and Atlantic Coast Pipeline. From the earliest stages of the fight in 2014 to present-day tree-sit blockades and ongoing legal hurdles. Though this is our final episode for our regular slot on WRIR, it is not the end of End of the Line. This episode does, however, signify a transition, where in the future, we'll bring you long-form episodes every few months. We also plan to expand this series beyond just the pipelines to cover new unfolding struggles that are happening as we speak, such as the newly approved Chickahominy Power Station in nearby Charles City County. Coupled with existing projects in the area, this massive gas power plant would make Charles City County one of the largest sacrifice zones for polluting waste and energy in the region. Jill Averett, resident of Nelson County, recently attended the meeting where the Air Pollution Control Board voted to approve this Chickahominy power station. She said that because of what she's faced with the ACP, she now understands why showing up for one another is so important. Mostly, I found it really important because we need to support each other in stopping these things. I mean, that, that's how we're going to make change. And they, you know, these poor people in Charles City uh, County had most of them had no idea this was even happening. And when we found out, we just wanted to go and, and be witness to, to this hearing. After sitting in rooms like this for votes that impact her own community, Jill says she was disappointed, 
but not surprised by the outcome of the vote. Quite frankly, just pray and hope every time we show up to one of these that it's going to be different, that, that you know, people are going, are, that we're going to be heard. And, and it's, it's soul-crushing to go to these things and see the exact same process run out in front of you the same way it has in all previous hearings. You know, they have the same, you know, opportunity to speak, but you can't speak if you're not an intervener. And, you know, most of the people there didn't even know about the project. So, of course, they weren't an intervener. So they were prohibited to speak. And it's just really sad. And to listen to all the excuses, and they always, I mean, you know, it's the same, same at every hearing. There's always one board member who asks all the right questions who, you know, you agree with and, and you hear the responses from DEQ, the pathetic uh, same excuses you ha- ha- hear all the time at these meetings, trying to skirt the obvious. And and after this conversation happens between DEQ and the board members, you think, okay, finally, this is, this is so, they're going to listen. They're going to hear this. They're going to understand that DEQ is not doing their job, that Dominion is trying or whoever it is who's you know, in the hearing is is lying, and they're going to stop this finally. They're going to they're going to make a move, and it's the same every time. And the vote comes down, and you know, and it just it's just absolutely soul crushing to go through and listen. But in my conversation with Jill, I wanted to pick up on what she had said before about the realization that showing up for one another is how we will win. Michael and I had talked about a similar thing the day before. He said that despite the grief and the hardship of such a soul-crushing, uphill battle, he believes that the pipeline struggles have changed the face of Virginia. For those who have endured this and who have, you know, and who are, who understand like the, everything that's gone into like living day to day within this struggle, um, I think winning looks entirely different. I mean, I think, Quite honestly, like the this state looks entirely different because of the resistance born out of this pipeline struggle. Um, I mean, does Dominion still have a lot of power over the state? Like, yeah, but a couple of years ago, were there candidates that were running on an anti-Dominion platform because of how toxic that entity was? Like, no, they, they wouldn't even think about it. And if this pipeline goes through it will go through having changed the state in a way that it created an empowered, connected and organized resistance of people. And there will never be able to be an injustice in this state that is that is unopposed in the same way. Well, I mean, to me, there's two facets of it. I think it has changed the face of activism in the state of Virginia. Environmental activism in particular has usually been perceived as being, you know, uh, younger folks and ex-hippies who are all tree huggers, you know, and, and, uh, and, and sort of granola types. And I think that what we've seen in these pipelines is we've watched grandmothers and, and, uh, and grandfathers climb trees. You know, and 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 be part of the protest. We've watched business people step up. We've watched politicians uh, uh, refuse to take funding from the major player in this state, which is Dominion. And so I think that the the 
the idea of what it means to be an activist has changed. And of course, this is all in concert with the harsh reality that we're all having to face around around uh, climate change. And, you know, the U.N. Um, uh, warnings that we've got, you know, a dozen years or so to, to take action. And so I think we're seeing a movement that is that is um, uh, national reflected very acutely in Virginia because we have these two very specific um, uh, physical manifestations of this problem. Uh, and so I think that's huge. But I think the political landscape is forever changed, too. To have the numbers of candidates we do take and no uh, money pledged, to have them on both sides of the fence, not as many on the right as we'd like, but, but, but on both sides of the fence, saying that they uh, um, think it is inappropriate to take money from the agencies they regulate. Imagine that. What a novel concept. Um, you know, is, is a danger. Uh, and I think we, Dominion sees that their power is being undermined for the very first time in decades. And, and I think it's got them running scared. And it means they're going to come out like a caged animal fighting as hard as they can this fall. But we've got them on the ropes. I think recognizing that each action um, is more than just like the action. I think we think very literally and reactionary um, in a way that sometimes we take the broader story out of our organizing. And uh, a couple of years ago, there were people who heard, would hear about this pipeline and immediately think about their property rights being infringe and not think deeper into um, the larger context of, um, of how of how this pipeline fits into a larger colonial structure um, in which everything that work that our state and our economy is built on um, comes down to some form of extraction of bodies and of resources um, and we have yeah we have people that now are willing to that are are now talking about um, all kinds of struggles because they've been able to be a part of this struggle. These pipeline projects all over the U.S. is they're they're all gaining national attention. So this morning when we left our hotel room, we went down and had breakfast, and there was a guy sitting at the table next to us with a Standing Rock T-shirt on. And I was wearing my, you know, no pipeline, sun thing t-shirt. And I went up to him and I said, were you at Standing Rock? He goes, yes, ma'am. I was there on the, as a medic. And we talked for a little while and I thanked him for all that he's done. Because without them doing what they did at Standing Rock, we wouldn't be where we are today. We're all standing on each other's shoulders. And someday, soon, very, very soon, I hope it's this pipeline, but if it's not, it's going to be the next or the next. But we're going to see over the, the big wall, and we're going to win. There are people who, who, who label themselves as apolitical for whom we're not willing to talk about, you know, the atrocities that are happening at the border, you know, or the rise of you know, white supremacy in, the, in, this, in this country and the need, of, the need for actual protective action. 
Michael and I both noted something that we've learned over the last couple years of this fight. And that is that although as individuals, our comfort levels are often tested when we encounter social or ideological differences in fights like this, ultimately, the truth of the solidarity that people have found in these fights is even more uncomfortable and scary for those in power. The fact that communities across the region are talking to one another and ultimately finding themselves on the same side is truly a scary thing for some people. Because as so many brilliant minds have pointed out before on this show, those who yield decision-making power over all of our lives, they want separation. They thrive on it. The changes that these pipelines have brought have been devastating on many levels. We should not overlook or diminish that fact for a second. The devastation caused by the MVP is happening right now and will get worse if nothing is done to stop it. But the pipeline's struggles have also helped to make it the norm to talk about and confront Dominion's power in our cities and our state. For Michael and others I've spoken with, that's huge and should not be taken for granted, especially at this point in our history. Because confronting these dynamics of power doesn't just matter to environmental or ecological struggles, and it doesn't just matter to climate change. Because these aren't single issues, they are directly connected to the daily struggles to demand funding for public schools, clean water for children to drink, access to safe housing without fear of eviction or displacement, the daily struggles against racism, police brutality, and the separation of families, whether through mass incarceration in our cities or the humanitarian crisis at the border. We cannot ignore or forget that each of these problems and so many other issues facing communities are happening at the hands of specific people in specific positions of power. My greatest fear has shifted from beating the pipeline to making sure that between now and the time that we officially know we've won, that uh, Dominion and the Atlantic Coast Pipeline doesn't doesn't wreck our communities, um, both emotionally and and uh, and environmentally and physically. Right? Because they're going to try. They're going to try to come in and cut trees and dig trenches and all that stuff, even at a time when there's probably less than a 50% chance that they find a solution to get across the AT in Nelson County. And that would be tragic. And so I think we, we as a citizenry need to demand that, I mean, that's just unconscionable, right? If, if they build the pipeline in the end, then our lives are changed. But to allow them to wreck our communities and our environment when there is such uncertainty about the final resolution of these key issues about where the pipeline will be is truly unconscionable. Um, and so that, I, I think that to me is, is, is one thing. And the, on the other final thing that I would want to express is gratitude. As Jill said about the Standing Rock folks, we wouldn't be here without them. We wouldn't be here without you. We wouldn't be here without the folks on the MVP and the lawyers who have leaned in and done so much work to support us. And even still, like, they need your help. Um, and uh, I want people, we want people to know that there, there are so many ways to, to be that help. And it really just starts with, like, 
like go and visit, like visit and see what resistance looks like because it will change you. Um, you'll see, you'll see something that feels um, and looks different than than what you expect, and allows you to kind of see resistance as an everyday uh, part of being. This experience is a symptom of of a problem we're experiencing across our democracy, which is that uh, it, it, our, uh, I mean, really at the core, the way in which we are funding, electing, and supporting our democracy uh, has led to, in the realm of an oligarchy, right? That, that says that the individual citizen doesn't feel like their vote matters because frankly, you don't have a voice very often. And, and it's going to require a much more um, uh, uh, engaged, responsible, and demanding public, not just about these pipelines, but about all of these things, in order for us to take back that democracy. And and I think that this is, you know, as these are sort of uh, bellwether moments uh, or watershed moments that, that give us evidence of what that looks like. Yeah, it's... It's not gonna. It's not gonna be easy. It's not. It's gonna continue to be really, really hard. Um, and it's not gonna fit into an easy schedule. It's not gonna fit into a school or work schedule. But there's, there's, like, I. All of the hardship and all of the exhaustion and grief that has gone into it, into this, like, I can't imagine doing anything else. The past few years of my life. And so what I want is for people to uh, challenge themselves to see what way they can be a part of it. I think, first of all, they're gonna encounter things that make them uncomfortable. Um, and, you need, and you need to be ready to feel uncomfortable because the situation and everything we're fighting is incredibly uncomfortable. Um, but I think once you, I think uh, once you get over some of the shock and some of the um, and some of like the initial what feels like barriers of um, of culture or you know life understanding, um, like you'll realize that you are in direct community with some, with people that you probably wouldn't have been with ever in your life, and the, the true thing that you now share is that you are in a struggle for a better world. End of the Line is produced by Whitney Whiting with music by Restroy and Loba Marino. So much thanks to the Averitts and to Michael for having these conversations with me this week. And thank you so much to everyone for listening the last couple of years. Be sure to keep up with End of the Line on iTunes and on PipelinePodcast.org. There is so much more to come. <laughs>